Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-med year, session number 352. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you for taking some time to join me today. I have a very special guest that I'm excited to share with you today, Dr. Alden Landry, a an emergency medicine physician who has taken it upon himself, along with some colleagues of his, to help the path of underrepresented students into medical school, dental school, and other health professions by starting Tour for Diversity. Now, when I found out about Tour for Diversity, I reached out to Dr. Landry several years ago, and I said, hey, I need to get you on the pre-med years to share your story, to share your encouragement, to share your resources with my audience, with my listeners. And it took a couple years, but he's here sharing his story and making your journey to medicine that much more accessible. Hope you enjoy this episode and go check out tourfordiversity.org. Alden, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. When did you realize you wanted to be a physician? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I'd probably answer it in two parts. Um, I knew I wanted to go to medical school um, before I knew I wanted to become a doctor, um, if that makes any sense. No, um, it doesn't. I, I would love to hear that explanation. So, you know, I just for clarity. So when I was um, probably in the third or fourth grade, uh, my grandfather... Uh, who was uh, a cattle farmer in East Texas, uh, told me that the smartest uh, types, of, smartest type of doctor were veterinarians because they took care of patients and couldn't communicate with them. Um, <laughs> and so I had this understanding that, you know, or this belief, thanks to my grandfather, who I looked up to, um, that veterinarians were, you know, the sort of the top of the food chains, intellectual food chain uh, when it comes to doctors. Um, and then I decided at some point that I wanted to become a doctor, but I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, but I got to college and I met a bunch of people who wanted to go to medical school. And it was easier to wrap my brain around that next step of be going to getting into medical school or going to medical school than it was to becoming a doctor and actually what it entails to be a doctor. Yeah. And so from a stepwise fashion, I could, you know, going from college to medical school made sense, but going from college to doctor um, I didn't understand the steps that were in between um, to get there. Or I didn't know that I didn't know the steps that were in between. And so I knew I wanted to go to medical school. And then I 
said, I'll figure out how to become a doctor when I'm in medical school. Okay. Um, so hopefully it gives a little bit of clarity as far as um, my thought process when it comes to answering that question. Definitely. That definitely helps. And I, I think uh, as we progress in our conversation today, I, I think that probably um, that lack of understanding potentially is, is it sounds like that's something that you're out there to fix uh, as we progress in our conversation. So you you ended up uh, going to medical school eventually. What was the, the pre-med process for you? You said you had a bunch of friends in undergrad who also wanted to go to medical school. For you, what was what was that process like? Were there any big obstacles in the way or was it smooth sailing? Um, you know, anybody who tells you it's smooth, smooth sailing um, is selling you a bill of goods. Um, <laughs> so for me, um, I, I was fortunate. Um, I was truly blessed along the process. Um, I ended up at the right college with the right set of mentors, the right set of advisors, and the right set of um, people to surround myself with. And I think that's the reason why I was uh, able to sort of um, navigate this process um, a little bit smoother than than, than some. Um, so I went to a small HBCU, Prairie View A&M University. It's right outside of Houston, Texas. And it's you know not a well-known institution unless you know um, HBCU football, whereas we had the longest losing streak in college football <laughs> history. Um, or if you're in the college bands, when we perennially have one of the best bands in, um, in the country. Yep. Um, but we also have a very strong, and I say we because I, I still consider myself a, a, both a product and um, a supporter of, of my university. But um, Prairie View has this great um, track record of putting uh, minorities, uh, specifically uh, African-American or, or Black students into careers in the health professions, whether it be medicine, dentistry, optometry, um, pharmacy, and nursing, and, and even veterinary medicine. Um, but uh, I, I ended up going to Prairie View um, for a number of reasons, um, but it, it, it definitely was the right choice for me and the right time for me. I participated in a program that was a uh, health careers opportunities program uh, called um, uh, Pre-Medical Concepts Institute. And it was this great summer program that started before your freshman year of college, where you come in and you sort of get this entree into what it's like to be a pre-medical student. You do a course, uh, your freshman biology course, you get these um, uh, intro courses to chemistry, both or, uh, inorganic and inorganic chemistry. And you get a intro to calculus and physics. And, you know, those were the sort of the, the, the staples as uh, pre-med requirements. And so you do this program, but then you're also in a part of a cohort of about 30 or so students who all come in expressing an interest in becoming a health professional of some type. And uh, you meet individuals, you study together, you're on campus together, you learn sort of uh, the culture of the institution. And it was just great segue into what it was going to be like to be a college student um, with the pre-med focus. And uh, it was during that time that I you know, really had a better understanding of what it took to get into medical school. And that was a springboard for me going forward uh, in college. I won't say college wasn't easy. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a breeze for me. I did have a lot of fun in college. Um, my, uh, you know, my time in college was great. Um, I did have some struggles, of course, with courses and you know, I'm not afraid to admit I took the MCAT twice. The first time I took the MCAT, uh, I thought I was going to be, you know, just fine. I remember taking the uh, the first time preparing for it. I didn't really prepare. I was like, I, I've already taken organic chemistry. I've taken <laughs> uh, a couple mock exams. I know where I'm scoring. Yep. Uh, and I didn't study like I needed to. And uh, you know, I took the MCAT back when it was only offered twice a year. And uh, on paper, <laughs> it's still on paper on Scantron, no less, yep. in a big auditorium. 
And uh, I took the exam and uh, I, I, when I'm telling students, I, I feel like, um, you know, after I took the exam, I feel like I, I, I lost a fight to Mike Tyson. I, mean, <laughs> I, I was beat up. I was sore. My head hurt. Um, Your butt hurt. And, uh, yeah. Sitting that I, long. Yeah. My pride definitely hurt. <laughs> yep. um, and I got my score back and it was uh, sort of a so- shock to the system. And I said, well, I know what I need to do. And, I need, and, and that means I need to train for it. I need to prepare for the exam. Uh, well, so I did why, why did you have that thought process versus, well, I guess I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Uh, let me go figure something else out. Uh, great question. I think the reason why I knew that, well, first off, I knew I could do better. So there's that, that intrinsic drive that just told me you can do better than this. And this, this score does not represent who you are as a, as a, as a student, um, as, as a test taker, um, and uh, as, as an applicant to medical school. And I just knew internally that the score did not represent me. I also knew that I had to do better if I wanted to get accepted to the medical schools that I wanted to go to. Um, it just wasn't realistic for me to apply with that score. I think that I was going to be able to have a choice in getting into medical schools. Um, and then also I had the people around me saying, Alden, you didn't take it serious the first time. You didn't do what you were you know, advised to do ahead of time. Why don't you take it and, and, and be serious about it? Um, and so it was, I guess, maybe all of those factors coming in um, and said, Alden, uh, you have to retake it. And, and, and I did. And, uh, I took in, I took a very different approach. I took, uh, I would say four mock tests sort of each week before I actually took the exam. I told, I'm sorry. I took a mock test once a week for the four weeks prior mm-hmm. to the exam, I guess is a better way to say that. Yep. Um, I studied, I did questions. Um, and I even did a little summer program that was offered at the university of Louisville school of medicine. And it was a preparatory, uh, program for the MCAT for underrepresented students in medicine. Um, and it was a phenomenal program. And I, with all of that preparation, um, my score went up tremendously. And I went from being concerned about applying to medical school with such a weak score to um, really having uh, opportunities to sort of pick and choose where I wanted to go for both interviews and also where I wanted to go um, when I was uh, selecting a medical school. Talk about, you said the score that you got, you knew it wasn't going to, or you needed to do better to get into the schools that you wanted to go to. What what was the thought process behind why you were choosing the schools to go to? Uh, so I, I'll be 100% honest with you. There was um, a little bit of superficial um, uh, thought into which schools I wanted to apply to um, and not in the way that I was looking for sort of name recognition or um, things like that. So I'm originally from Texas and um, I consider Texas home, even though I grew up as an army brat and I lived in other parts of the country and I knew that it was important for me to be comfortable while I was in medical school. And so I wasn't looking at a lot of schools in the North um, because I am not a fan of cold weather, which is interesting because <laughs> I live in Boston. Now. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I was looking for, you know, schools that were going to be close to, you know, where I considered a home that was going to allow me to have the comforts that I was looking for. Um, I wanted to be within driving distance of friends and family, but I knew I needed to be outside of, you know, Texas um, because all of my friends and family were there. So I needed to have that buffer, um, um, but I needed to be able to overcome that buffer if necessary. Um, and I, I wanted a school that was going to train me um, and allow me to grow um, both uh, as an individual with, with interest, but then also just to be cultivated as a medical student. And sort of, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's um, and to help me become the doctor that I, I aspired to be uh, once I figured that out in medical school. Um, and so 
with all of the schools that I was applying to, I looked at schools pretty much, you know, in, in Southern states, warmer weather states. Um, I was looking for a state school as opposed to a private school because I wanted to control the cost of uh, my education. Um, I was looking at places that offered uh, support for, um, for underrepresented minority students. And then I was honestly just looking for a place that I felt comfortable. And, you know, we always talk about in medicine, that gut feeling, feeling or the gestalt. Um, and when I walked into my institution, um, uh, that I chose for medical school, which is the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, it felt right. It, I felt comfortable. I felt like I was at home. I had a, um, because of another program that I participated in, I had already developed a relationship with the institution. Um, and all the other schools that I applied to were great. And I got warm and fuzzy feelings from a, from a number of them. But there was only at one place that I really felt like I was going to be supported and allowed to grow um, the way that I was hoping to. Um, and I think I chose well. You ended up going to uh, going into emergency medicine. What was the thought process behind picking your residency? So I chose emergency medicine after a bit of a sort of medical student crisis, I mean, sort of like a, a midlife crisis, but for medical students. And uh, my medical school was a traditional uh, school, whereas you did two years sort of pre clerkship in the classroom, um, and then your last two years were in the hospital. Mm. And because as I mentioned uh, earlier that I knew I wanted to go to medical school, but I didn't know I wanted to be a doctor or what type of doctor. Um, when I started medical school, uh, I relied on other people to sort of give me advice and tell me, almost tell me what I should be. And so um, I knew that I liked anatomy. I knew that I liked uh, working with my hands. Um, and uh, so everyone told me I should be a surgeon. And I sort of bought into that uh, mentality and, um, I had convinced myself that I was going to be some sort of surgeon, um, I guess, towards the uh, middle of my first year of medical school. And uh, I joined the surgery interest group and started shadowing surgeons and, you know, things were going along the path of me becoming a surgeon. And then uh, as, you know, with us going, with me going to a traditional medical school, I didn't get exposed to surgery until um, formal rotations in surgery until I guess... uh, January, February of my third year of medical school. And this is right about the time that most people have sort of figured out what they want to be uh, in medical school and have committed to it through research and mentors and letters of recommendation. And I got to my surgery rotation and I absolutely hated it. Uh, It just wasn't for me. Um, I didn't like the hours. I didn't like the fact that I was standing in one place for hours. Um, I didn't like the fact that I couldn't take a bathroom break or I was getting hungry. And not not to you know to to uh, you know uh, take anything away from surgery and their training. It just didn't fit me, and I wasn't comfortable. Um, and I didn't uh, I did I knew I wasn't going to be happy as a surgeon, and hence my my medical student crisis when I was going getting towards the end of my third year, and I hadn't decided on what I was going to you know I, I, I the one thing that I committed to as far as a specialty, at least what I others I've been telling other people. Um, wasn't going to be. I didn't, I knew it wasn't going to be a good, op- good option for me. And so I had to scramble to really figure out what was next. Um, and as luck would have it, or maybe not luck, but uh, again, just being blessed, I had a, a mentor who was there all along the way who happened to be an emergency medicine doc. And he sat me down and he talked to me about what my interests are, my likes and my dislikes. And he said, well, what did you like about your PEDS rotation? And so when I was going over my PEDS rotation, I talked about the time that I admitted a a uh, patient who was um, having an acute asthma flare and uh, needed stacked nibs, and we almost had to uh, put him in the ICU. And then 
when he asked me what did I liked about my psychiatry rotation. I said it was going down and taking care of the you know, acutely psychotic patient in the emergency department who uh, was being aggressive. And then he asked me about my neurology rotation. And I said, well, we were taking care of those patients who had strokes or uh, who uh, were, were seizing and we had to adjust medications to, to stabilize them for their, for their epilepsy. And uh, he, he sort of helped me realize that I like the acuity and I like the sort of the acute interventions for people who were, were ill for whatever reason it may be. Um, but I didn't like the the long term aspects of the care, um, whether it was the inpatient management of pneumonia or titrating medications for high blood pressure or diabetes. That wasn't what sort of excited me about medicine. Um, and he said, "Why don't you come in and hang out in the emergency department with me and do um, uh, a short elective in the emergency department? And if you like it, you know we could figure out how to help you match an emergency medicine." And he was a hundred percent right. He was spot on. Um, and it turned out that I loved emergency medicine. Um, I liked the variety, the people, the management of the of uh, the illnesses and diseases that presented to the ED. Um, but I also loved the people, um, and it's the staff that you work with, the nurses, the techs, the other docs that you're working with. Um, I, I, I love working with the the patients that presented to the emergency department, and uh, I realized that all along, emergency medicine was a specialty for me. And that's really when I when I um, said committed to emergency medicine was towards the third into my third year, and I had to scramble and do away rotations, um, find opportunities, and I was fortunate to um, come up to Boston and do a visiting clerkship program um, based out of Harvard Medical School, and ended up matching here for residency and uh, been in emergency medicine ever since. <laughs> up in Boston in the cold. Uh, in Boston in the cold. <laughs> Gotta love those winters. Oh man, I I don't know how much of my my story you know, but I I was in Boston for uh, on and off for about a, a decade, which uh, I'm glad I'm not there anymore. But um, you you mentioned right you you realize you don't want to do surgery, and you were courageous enough to to really make that stand. I think a lot of students in that situation will go well. I need to save face, right? I've told everybody I want, I'm going to be a surgeon. So I might as well just keep going down this path. Maybe I'll like it later on. And unfortunately, too many people do that. You, you mentioned that you were, you went to a mentor and it's not the first time you mentioned that kind of the people that you have surrounded yourself with are really the ones that are helping you figure this out as you go. Now, I think especially as uh, an underrepresented person in medicine for pre-med specifically, they struggle finding those mentors, finding those people to surround themselves with. Why do you think you were so successful doing that? Um, you know, it's a great question. I think a lot of people struggle with finding mentors. It's um, because they don't do the follow-up. Um, and what I mean by that is I go to conferences often. I, well, let me put it let, from my perspective when I was a medical, uh, when I was a pre-med student and then as a medical student, and then I'll flip to sort of my perspective now that I'm on the other side of things. But I remember as a pre-med student, I would get handed a business card from someone, whether it be at a conference or uh, they would come and give a talk in my school or whatever it may be. And, you know, me being me, I'm a fairly outgoing person. I would take the business card and send out an email or make a phone call and just have conversations because I, I was um, in need of direction and knowledge. Um, my family uh, is, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, from East Texas. There's no doctors in the family. 
Um, we have farmers and ranchers um, in my grandparents' generation, and then uh, a younger generation. Uh, my my parents' generation worked in factories, um, and then many of them left uh, that life to uh, join the military. And uh, at no point did I have anyone who uh, was related to me that I could just turn to and say, "Hey, what's what's it like to be a doctor? How do I study for the MCAT?" Or you know, what's the application process for medical school? That wasn't that wasn't our our conversations that we had around the dinner table. Um, so when um, I met people, I had questions for them, and so I would start with simple questions. You know, what is what is it like to be a vascular surgeon? What type of patients do you see um, when you're doing radiology? Uh, you know, what's the path to become a radiologist? And you know, you start with those questions uh, and. People love to talk and, and share their stories because they're always looking. Um, um, I would say many people who are passionate about mentoring and advising um, love to just have conversations. And um, sometimes it's a one-off conversation and other times it leads to something, but you never know if you don't send the email. And so I was that person who, if I got a business card, I would more than likely um, reach out to that person. And that's what allowed me to identify mentors um, and identify people who are going to be in my life uh, constantly uh, to help me to make it to that next level. Um, and then, so I'll say that now that I'm on the other side and I'm the one who's in a position to be the mentor for many students, um, it's not uncommon for me to go to a, a conference and I'll go with a stack of business cards and I'll give out 50 and I may get five emails back. Um, and so it's those students who send me emails that I'm able to build a relationship with and you know, set up shadowing opportunities for them or talk to them about their personal statement or help them navigate career uh, or course loads for, for the year as they're planning to study for the MCAT. And it's those students who don't email me that I often wonder and worry about um, because I don't know what happened to them. I hope that they go off and they have other, maybe better mentors and uh, better support. Um, but I just feel like it was always a missed opportunity because I try not to, you know, if I'm giving you my business card, I think it's... Um, it's important for me to be um, not just doing it for show, but actually to help out those uh, who do reach out to me and, and, and look for advice. And, you know, sometimes I will, when I'm talking to a student, you know, I can't always, you know, have a sit down meeting with them, but I'll talk to them while I'm driving to work. So, you know, I have a 25 minute commute. That's 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes of my commute. I can be having a conversation with a pre-med student uh, mm. about, you know, their choices and w- which direction that they want to go. Or I can have a conversation with a medical student about choosing a residency program. And so I try and use my, those times that I'm otherwise uh, available, you know, to just be open and share with those students. And I wish um, just in general, and it doesn't necessarily just reflect on me handing out my business cards, but I, I think that there are a lot of people that are out there who are willing to, you know, use that, you know, that time that they're commuting or in between meetings, um, not just to send out more work emails and press delete on the mass uh, emails that they get, but they would love to actually have conversations with students. Uh, if only the students actually um, did did their part and and, and actually stepped up and, and started the, the the relationship with the mentor. Let's talk about the students doing their part because I get emails from students a bunch, and sometimes I get these like ten page just autobiographies and and the students just pouring their hearts out and. You're a busy physician. I'm busy trying to help as many students as possible. What's the best way for a student, if you handed them a card, for them to reach out to you and and let you know that they need your help? 
Yeah, I get I, I get those same emails where it's, you know, you're reading it and then it's, uh, you know, a personal statement within an email um, and the ask is buried at the very end. Um, and so for me, um, I, I would say what makes things easier for me when I'm um, looking through the emails after a conference is um, an e- the, the email with their name and sort of where we met um, sort of right up front in the conversation we had. Um, the ask that they want right up front, and then a little bit of background as to the why for the ask. And so if it's, you know, hey, Dr. Landry, we met at, you know, Student National Medical Association Conference, and you mentioned away rotations um, for visiting students. Um, Just so you remember, I am a uh, fourth year medical student at state school, uh, and I am going to be applying into, you know, a certain subspecialty. I was wondering if you had a chance to sit down and talk um, or if we can set up a phone conversation to talk about uh, how to best apply for away rotations. You know, short, simple, clean um, emails are always best with uh, just a reintroduction, uh, the question, and then the why for the question. And that helps me to sort of gauge how much time I'm going to need to invest in this uh, initial conversation and then uh, what I'm expected to bring to the table when I, when I have the conversation with the student. Then after that, I really think it's on the student to determine whether or not they want to continue to um, interface with the person that they started the conversation with. So, you know, I'm happy to have informational meetings with people that are 20 minutes and tell them about opportunities that I have in my office. Um, but if the student wants me to become their their mentor, the onus is really on the student um, to cultivate that relationship. So it's not just sending the first email, but sending the follow-up emails, sending the updates. And it doesn't have to be a weekly email or, or a monthly email. I don't necessarily talk to my mentors um, every week or every month, but I send them an update every four or six months or when something major happens in my life, personally or professionally. Um, or I give them an update when I have a question or I'm trying to make a decision. Uh, and I know this is something that they may have um, either sage advice or this is their area of expertise. And so I think it's really important that students are, uh, are conscious of the ask that they have for their mentors. Uh, but then they're also uh, uh, they understand that uh, these relationships require cultivating if they want them to to continue. Uh, and really, the onus is on the students to uh, to help build those relationships. And eventually, uh, the mentor will realize it, whether it's stated formally or or, or not, uh, that this is a mentor mentee relationship, and it needs to be cultivated as well from their end. Yeah. So you're a busy physician and uh, and teacher and and faculty there at Harvard. And you decide to start Tour for Diversity. What was the impetus for starting that organization? Um, Great question. I think the reality was we started the Tour for Diversity um, because, well, the the backdrop is um, we were... um, So Cameron Matthews is a a colleague of mine. She's a um, co-director of the tour. And uh, she and I were both on the board for the Student National Medical Association. She was the president and I was in a role called the uh, pre-medical board member. I was a medical student, but I was responsible for really cultivating uh, or generating uh, content uh, for pre-med students and making sure the needs of the pre-med students were met in the organization. She and I, she and I were on the phone one, one evening uh, after planning our uh, national conference for the SNMA. And uh, we talked about what it would take to get more pre-medical students involved and what the needs were the students uh, were for the, uh, for the organization. And we realized that 
you know, we were asking a lot for pre-medical students. We we're asking them to come to a conference um, that they uh, really didn't have a great understanding of what it was going to be about paying travel. So whether it's a flight or bus or carpooling, um, staying in a hotel room that they may not be able to afford um, for, you know, a, for a short conference. And uh, was that what was best for the students? And then we started talking about, and this is all in the same conversation, how do we flip the model and make it so that we bring the conference to the students? And it went from um, that to us putting together a PowerPoint presentation to presenting it to um, uh, our colleagues in the Student National Medical Association to even starting to solicit funding for this idea of taking a conference to students on their turf where we overcame a lot of the barriers that may prevent them from coming to a larger conference. So we would bring the conference to them. We would help set up the information. We would bring in the experts, the content experts to their institutions. And the only thing they had to do was show up and learn. Um, and uh, we came up with this idea while we were medical students. And uh, we thought it was a phenomenal idea. Unfortunately, no one else did. No one <laughs> took us serious. Um, and uh, so we had to table it. And as things would happen, uh, Cameron would go on to do her family medicine uh, residency. She also, at some point, went to law school in there as well. Um, Why not? I went on, <laughs> I went on a residency, um, and um, we both started growing professionally and getting fancy titles at uh, institutions. Um, and for some reason, uh, people uh, people tend to answer an email when it comes from, you know. Uh, dot harvard dot edu uh, when a doctor is sending an email looking for grant funding um you know it, it just it happens like that um and so we send out emails looking for funding and now that we are doctors who were um still unproven but more um gaining expertise in this arena um people started to take us seriously and we pitched it to a couple funders and we were eventually able to find funding for essentially the same content that we had planned many moons ago uh, as medical students uh, on taking a conference to students. And uh, that was really the, the beginning of the tour. And uh, we had this phenomenal first program, uh, the first year that we did the tour where we went to five historically black colleges uh, in the South. And we were on a bus going from campus to campus and doing these uh, pop-up pre-med conferences where we'd show up on campus at eight o'clock in the morning uh, we put our flyers up and put our banners up and our tablecloths out, and we'd host this amazing pre-med conference. And by four o'clock, uh, we were leaving that campus and getting on the bus and driving to the next campus to do it all again the next day. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was great. That first tour, we met so many students who, it was their first time seeing young Black uh, and Latino doctors and dentists so, who looked like them, who had similar stories to them. Um, and who were sharing their expertise. And you mentioned earlier about students always looking for mentors. Well, one of the things that we did was not only did we bring the content to the student, but we brought potential mentors to those students. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great opportunity for students to identify mentors um, through our organization that could potentially help them with their careers. How long ago did that start? Because I think it's been around for a long time now, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, we So our... And we initially came up with this idea back in 2006. We weren't actually able to execute it until 2012. So I think the moral of that story is if you have a great idea um, and it gets, uh, uh, you get told no, 
it's not always no. It's just sometimes it's not yet. Yep. Um, and for us, it was a not yet situation. Yeah. Um, and so we started our first tour in 2012, and we've done tours and other events and webinars ever since uh, since then. Um, we took a little bit of a hiatus on the road because uh, both professional growth for Cami and I, um, because we're both practicing physicians and um, and administrators and in all our other hats that we wear. Um, but we're actually planning on our new iteration of the tour, which is a different program um, that's going to be uh, restarting in 2020. So be on the lookout for the next uh, next iteration of uh, Tour for Diversity 2.0. <laughs> Breaking news right here on the podcast. Exactly. Um, so what what can students be on the lookout for? So somebody listening to this now, unfortunately, they don't they don't uh, they can't go back in time and be part of those earlier tours. What can a uh, underrepresented in medicine student be doing right now to start finding those mentors, to start getting that information from the tour or any other organizations out there? Um, so one of the things that we did was we, we knew that uh, this information needed to be cataloged in some form or way. And so we have a couple of things that are available on the web. We have a YouTube channel with all of our videos where we take uh, our hour-long presentations that we typically do on the tour, and we condensed it down to 10 or 15-minute more consumable, um, easily consumed uh, presentations. And so all of that stuff still lives on the web on our YouTube channel. Um, we're on Twitter and Facebook, and we're constantly posting about um, events, opportunities for students, whether it's for undergraduate students or medical students. Um, we have uh, our blog that's still... Uh, active and also archived. So you can go back and read old blogs from the tour. And then all of our mentors, which is, um, I think, a testament to uh, the folks that have committed to being a part of the Tour for Diversity in Medicine. They're engaged in so many different ways when it comes to pre-med students and whether it's they've started their own programs or they're um, working within their institutions. And we're all available. We still mentor. I still get emails from students that I met on some of our earlier tours that are asking for advice as they're applying to medical school. And I get in, you know, emails from students who weren't able to participate in the tour, but um, because of institutional memory, um, their institutions, um, you know, hosted us on some of our earlier tours and the pre-health advisors at those campus, uh, they still have my email address and they email me. And so students can reach out to us. Um, we also are working with other institutions, um, both here at Harvard and also the Mayo Clinic. Um, to actually start to talk about how this can be, how um, pre-med advising needs to be updated and how pre-health advisors um, can be more engaged. And so I do work with the National Association of Advisors for the Health Professions. Um, we have this conference that we have um, where we're talking about physician diversity with the Mayo Clinic. Um, we do our, um, we partner with pipeline programs here at, at Harvard. Um, and we also partner with the AAMC um, and some of the work they do with their summer health professions education program. And so we still have our tentacles out um, and are working with a number of organizations. And what I would say is if there's a pre-med student that's out there that's lost and looking for advice, always come to the tour. And if we can't help you right away, we can point you in the direction for uh, the organizations and, and the institutions that can better serve you and, and help you to achieve your dream. So there are going to be plenty of students listening to this going, why does it matter, right? Why, why do we need to put in the time and effort into cultivating the next generation of underrepresented physicians? Because in their mind, it's like, 
survival of the fittest, right? Highest MCAT score, highest grades. That Those are the ones that I want to be doctors. So those are the ones that should be doctors. Why should we be putting in all this effort? I guess the first place to start is, I don't know if I've ever seen a study that correlates um, uh, MCAT or, or GPA or step one scores with uh, quality and safety uh, and outcomes uh, for, for patients. Yeah. Um, and so th- just because you have great numbers and you're, you do well on taking tests doesn't mean that you're going to be a good doctor. Uh, and that is, that, that's regardless of race, ethnicity, uh, country of origin. Um, and I think what we are realizing in medicine, and we're very, coming to this very slowly, is uh, just because you're a good test taker uh, doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sort of go that extra mile to take care of that patient um, who has a need that isn't met by a textbook answer. Uh, and we had this discussion uh, years ago about health disparities, and we moved on to really talking about health equity. Uh, and I think medical schools are starting to see the light when it comes to who they accept to medical school um, in that they're trying to accept students who are going to be addressing health issues, uh, not just by um, prescribing medications and performing surgeries, but also going out and addressing the needs of rural communities or inner city communities or vulnerable populations like immigrants or uh, the LGBTQ community. And so what we need to do uh, is not just focus on the grades and the MCAT, but what's going to be the outcome? What's going to be the impact that that person accepted to medical school is actually going to have? And I think some of that goes along with the race and ethnicity as well. I mean, if you look at um, who takes care of patients who are more likely to be on Medicaid and serve in underserved communities, it tends to be uh, providers of color. And so if medical schools and really the whole institution of medicine is really interested in creating a health equity, uh, then we have to think about who we accept into medical school um, and what they're actually going to do as doctors and not just about how well they did on the MCAT. What do you think is the biggest barrier for the those who are underrepresented coming from lower socioeconomic parts of our country, why do you think there are so few and, and decreasing, as the studies show, every year, decreasing people who want to go to medical school? Um, you know, it's, it's partly you can't be what you can't see and people can't necessarily see themselves as a doctor. It's a lot easier to see yourself, you know, as going into the family business, whether it's uh, construction or farming or um you know, getting a nine to five um, because you can see people who make that uh, make that transition from you know student or uh, high school student or college student into those roles. It's a lot harder for people from disadvantaged backgrounds to see themselves becoming doctors. Um, I think it's it's a multifactorial uh, issue that we need to really look at and um, and, and and try and unpack. Um, but it's it's not a just there's not a one side one one answer will fix all of the problems. I mean, if you think about the data when you look at um, students coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, I think they say that uh, the AAMC data states that eighty um, percent of medical students come from the top two quintiles of family income. Mm. Um, and so, if you come from an affluent family, um, there's more resources available for you. Um, you have a higher likelihood of uh, getting into the colleges that are going to turn out students that are going to go into medical school. You are going to be able to afford the test prep um, services that uh, uh, those coming from different disadvantaged families uh, won't be able to afford. Um, but then also, as I mentioned earlier, you just, you're, when you're, that's your experience when you're 
when you're coming from a disadvantaged background and a, uh, an underprivileged background, the, the conversations that you have about education aren't the same. The conversations that you have um, about uh, how to be successful, how to d- identify mentors, um, uh, just conversations about, about science and the language that's used in the home is very different yeah. um, than, than what you're going to be exposed to. And I, I think that w- we need to realize that there's a lot of talent that's being um, uh, un- underdeveloped um, merely because of the, um, the way our finances and, and, and wealth is distributed in our country. Yeah. For the student out there listening to this who hasn't been able to see someone like themselves in those roles, whether it's physician, nurse, vet, whatever, and they're, they're struggling on this journey. Obviously, they're listening to this podcast right now, listening to this conversation, but they're, they're questioning whether or not they can do this. What do you have to say to them? You can. Um, you can do this. And I would say that uh, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. You have to stretch yourself and push yourself um, and take advantage of some of the opportunities that are out there um, that will uh, help you grow. And so I would encourage you know, those freshmen and, and sophomore students who are out there to do programs like the Summer Health Professions Education Program, SHPEPs, which is sponsored by the AAMC. Mm-hmm. I would ask those students to look into their communities and see if there's an active National Medical Association or uh, National Hispanic Medical uh, Association uh, chapter or AAIP, American Indian Physicians uh, organization, and see if they have a chapter that's out um, in their communities that's active and engage with them. Um, I would ask that the students. Um, see what opportunities are happening locally um, as far as volunteering and community service at hospitals that they, uh, they could be um, exclusive physicians and dentists and, and other health professionals. Um, I would also challenge students to not just, and you know, I, I, it's hard for people to accept this as me as a physician saying this, but to think about other careers in the health professions, because becoming a a medical doctor isn't necessarily the right decision for everybody, mm-hmm. um, but think about opportunities in pharmacy or optometry or podiatric medicine um, or nursing, um, and think about if that is a lifestyle that actually fits you better than becoming um, uh, a medical doctor. Um, I think oftentimes we hear from students and it's uh, doctor or bust, um, and the reality is you you can have a parallel plan, um, or you may not just be uh, appropriately exposed to other professions. And once you get that appropriate exposure, you're actually going to find something else that you like and you like it better than medicine. For me, it was choosing emergency medicine over surgery. um, But for some people, it may be choosing dentistry over medicine or or optometry over over medicine. And so when you have those exposures, you you can see that there are other opportunities that are out there that may make make you happier. You may find more career fulfillment uh, in, in another specialty. Where can students go get more information about the tour and everything you're doing there? Biggest way to reach out to us is on Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Uh, the website is www.tour, T-O-U-R, the number four, diversity, D-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y.org. Or you can reach us at Tour for Diversity on Twitter. We're on Facebook as well. Uh, then you can also reach out to me, A.M. Landry, M.D., on Twitter, uh, and I can put you in contact with people as well. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Alden Landry, an emergency medicine physician and co-founder of Tour for Diversity. Hopefully you got a lot of encouragement out of this episode today. Hopefully you got a lot of motivation. Hopefully 
if you are an underrepresented student on this journey, you can see that it is possible. And there are people in front of you that have done this, that look like you, that talk like you, that come from the same places as you. And I loved his quote, right? If you can't see it, you can't be it. I think I'm going to steal that quote and use it everywhere from now on. But it's completely true. And something that we're working on here at MedEd Media is a book called Pre-Med Mentors, where we're going to gather a bunch of underrepresented physicians and physicians who come from different places and and look differently and speak differently. And hopefully there's a pre-med student out there that will find that story and it will resonate with them and it will give them the motivation to move forward on this journey, to know that they can be a physician because we need more physicians like you. So go check out tourfordiversity.org. You can spell it F-O-U-R-F-O-R, the number four. Um, Alden only had the number four diversity.org, but I went out and bought all the other websites. So spell it however you want and you will get to where you need to go. Tourfordiversity.org. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.